Christian, developing Christian character next week. So have we got the PowerPoint up? Yeah. Today, I'm t- as you've already guessed, we're going to be looking at uh, seizing self-control from Galatians chapter 5. Appreciated Phil's um, illustration. I've got one as well, Phil, uh, about flying. Anybody like flying? Uh, who prefers flying in a light aircraft to a uh, jet airliner? Anybody like the light aircraft flights? Some of us are adventurous. Who likes flying in jet airliners? Okay, lots of people. I want to tell you this morning, I, I usually enjoy flying, whether it's in light aircraft or a uh, modern jet airliner. There was one time back in 2005 in Mount Isa when uh, we were finishing our ministry at the church there and moving away. And one of the guys in the other church used to be a, uh, a um, oh, what do you call it when they fly helicopters to chase cattle? Muster. He used to do mustering. That's it. Yeah, helicopter pilot. Well, he wasn't. He was a light, uh, ultralight pilot, and he used to use his ultralight mustering. And he'd promised me in the five years that I was in Mount Isa to take me for a flight in his ultralight. So I thought, oh, this is going to be great. You know, I've looked into ultralights over the years. A friend of mine actually had one similar to this. This is going to be wonderful. So we rock up at the uh, property where the hangar was, where he stored his aircraft, and um, my eyes popped and my jaw dropped because we were flying on a stick with two seats on it, a wing up above, and a fan pushing us backwards. And uh, I was not looking forward to that flight. Once I got my breath, he took off and it was a great takeoff. And then we're flying over out, over Lake Mundara at Mount Isa. And he said, John, see those horses? We had a headset on so it wasn't too noisy. He said, John, see those horses down there? I said, yeah, this is what I used to do. <laughs> and he dive-bombed the horses. And the stomach's already... And um, I was surprised at myself for not screaming. But I guess because the stomach was in the throat, it wouldn't have helped. But I soon settled down because he only did that once. Thankfully, I only did that once. And then we went for a flight and flew over an airfield, a, a grass airstrip. And he said, oh, that looks like Bill down there. He's got a gyrocopter. It looks like he's got a few mates around for, for, uh, for a bit of a morning. We went out. We landed on a country road, which is the first time I've ever done that. Took off again. And as we were coming back, he said, let's just go down and have a look at Bill's airfield. So we flew down, had a look, and flew back up. And he says, I will go down and say good day. And uh, to my surprise, a lot of the men from the churches in town had gathered to give me a farewell breakfast. (laughs) I'm so glad the stomach stayed there and not up there. It was an amazing surprise. But that self-control issue was uh, something that I questioned on that flight. And I read a story this week of another one, another flight, similar, uh, requiring self-control. It was about a chap who had a, a, uh, a joy flight business and he used to offer uh, flights in his stunt plane to people who were prepared to go up. So, so he offered, a, a pastor came to him and one day and said, can you take my wife and I for a flight in your plane? And so he said, yes, I can. This is the price uh, per person. And the pastor said, oh, that's pretty steep. Pretty steep, you know. Can, can you cut the price? And so the pilot said, "Well, here's a, here's a challenge for you. I'll I'll charge you one airfare if you both come with me for a flight, 
and you don't say a word the whole time. You're totally in self-control. So the pastor agrees. He thought, this is, a, this is a good deal. And so they went up and this guy threw that stunt plane through all sorts of aerobatics and all that sort of stuff. And then he landed and there wasn't a sound from the passengers. And the pilot, who was exhausted from flying, he said, I didn't hear a word from you. I made moves up there that even frightened me. And yet you never said a word. You must have incredible self-control. The pastor thanked the pilot and then said, I must admit there was one time when you almost had me. When was that? asked the pilot. To which the man replied, when my wife fell out of the plane. (laughs) I can imagine that would take some fairly good self-control. So we're talking about self-control today. And it's not a subject that a lot of us like to talk about because... um, we just like the free and easy lifestyle. You know, we don't want to be told what to do and we don't want to, don't want to uh, make ourselves do the things that we should do. And uh, I'm so thankful for Paul and for Peter and for others that wrote the scriptures that they addressed this issue for us as believers. Galatians 5, we uh, have been looking at that and it's stuck on me, guys. It's not going to go ahead. Uh, Julian, can you just pop that one screen ahead for me? There we are. How about we read this again? This is the last time that we read this in this series. How about we read Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Interesting, when you read that list, there are some directional intentions of those words. Uh, Joy and faithfulness, are expressed vertically, if you like, between us and God. It's that relationship that we have with God. Peace, patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness bear directly on how we interact with people. But self-control stands out on its own. It's, I think, a little bit out of place in this group of uh, gifts that's mentioned here because it's the characteristic, I guess, of our, of our development as Christians that seems to focus on me rather than on other people. Self-control in my life. I can exercise self-control when I'm not with other people. Is that true? It should be true. I can exercise self-control when I'm the only person in the house. In fact, sometimes the hidden private moments when no one else is looking is exactly the time when I need to exercise self-control the most. If we properly live our lives of self-control, it will not only affect our lives, but it will affect the lives of people around about us. Have you thought about that? If we are in control of ourselves, then others will be affected by our lives. The Greeks had an interesting way of uh, describing words. As I mentioned the other week, they often had a picture in mind. Uh, And that picture of the tame stallion is still in my mind when it comes to gentleness. I don't know about you. And when they tried to illustrate self-control, they built a statue of a man or a woman in perfect proportion. So so their aim was, to them, the self-control was the proper ordering and balancing of life. Everything was perfect. That was their thinking. One of their philosophers, Aristotle, said this, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. 
for the hardest victory is the victory over self. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Victory over self. Aristotle saw was more braver than victory over enemies. When we're not self-controlled, our life can be a mess. It's quite an interesting word picture. In the Bible, the NIV uses the word self-control. The uh, King James Version uses the word temperance. And we're not, we're not. Temperance to us means non-drinking to a lot of people, doesn't it? A temperate person. So, but, but the Greek word is this word enkratia, enkratia. And it means self-control or self-control. It comes from a word which means strength. One who holds himself in. And I thought to myself, that could be a girdle type uh, description, couldn't it? But it's one who's in control of himself, who, who holds himself in. Someone who's control, self-controlled so they don't live in bondage to their, to their desires, their passions, their appetites. I don't know about you, but my body is a good servant, but it's a miserable master. So it's good to do the things that I ask you to do, but sometimes there are desires and, and, and things that take over. Self-control is a good translation of that word, that Greek word, and, but it is a little bit deceiving because you and I know that ultimately we can't control ourselves simply through our own willpower or by saying, I'm going to control myself. It often takes a little bit more than that. And Paul knew exactly what I'm talking about there. And this is where this word comes from, the writer of Paul. And he said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Anybody been there? We know the right thing to do, but we don't do it. So Paul faced this dilemma. He wrote about it. We can get a fuller meaning of a fuller understanding of Paul's meaning if we were to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And certainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 26, Paul contrasts the exercising of self-control over your body like that of a, a man beating the air, boxing the air aimlessly. If we don't do it with an aim in mind, if we don't do it with a purpose in mind, it's like beating the air aimlessly. And just like most um, athletes, they have to be focused on the goal. They have to be focused on getting the better time or, or swimming the fastest time or, or running the, the fastest race. They have to be focused. And, and so they can't let anything else intrude on that focus. And this is what Paul's saying. We need to let God, by his spirit, control us. And I think uh, Julie mentioned that earlier. And so someone has said this is the best definition of, for Christians of uh, self-control. It's the control of the self by the spirit for the sake of the gospel. The control of the self by the spirit for the sake of the gospel. So we willingly relinquish control of ourselves to God's Holy Spirit so that he could bring about the kingdom of God for the sake of the gospel. Someone else has said self-control, biblically speaking, means walking by the Spirit under the Lordship of Christ. We've heard all that before, haven't we? But how do we do it practically? Love the verse that Judy, uh, Julie uh, mentioned earlier, the, the breaking down of the walls, and I'm referring to that now. It's the absence of self-control when the walls are broken down. Proverbs 25 and verse 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. 
Now, sometimes this is not a picture that we understand because we don't live in walled cities like they did in, in the uh, time of uh, pre-Christ and Christ. But what it meant for them was that the main strength of that city was in its walls. As we said earlier, that it protected from the animals, uh, animals, enemies, and the animals, the wild animals, but it also provided security within the walls. And if there was a, a breach of that security, then the town could be wiped out. So that's a, a really important concept. In fact, if the walls were broken down, the reputation of that city would be known as shameful because they weren't prepared to build the walls again. And so it was, it was, it was a, a statement about the attitude of people in that city if the walls were broken down. Most of us have read Nehemiah in the Old Testament, the story of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah said this to the uh, ruler of the day. He said that the people, the report that came back from Jerusalem, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Nehemiah knew what that meant for the safety, security and the reputation of the people of Jerusalem. And any man or woman who lacks self-constraint, who lacks self-control, is like a city with a wall broken down that has no defence mechanisms in place. Not able to resist those things that can destroy lives, their lives and the lives of others. That's what it means. If we forfeit the fruit of self-control, we are weak, like a broken down wall, and we're certainly not wise if we don't restore it. There are a few examples in the scriptures of people who lack self-control. Can you think of any? I'm going to give you a couple. Samson. Samson was a judge of the people of Israel for 20 years. He was appointed as an authority. And if you read his story in Judges chapter 14 to 16. But he's a portrait of self-destruction. He's a portrait of lack of self-control. He spent 20 years leading God's people. But because... He allowed the influence of the Philistines, the pagan Philistines, to come in because he frequented the Philistine prostitutes and eventually told Delilah the secret of his power. Then he was overcome. He lacked lacked sexual self-control. He soon lost his hair, his strength and his life. There's another example in the Old Testament. King Saul. King Saul was was appointed as king over Israel, and he lacked self-control as well. He was so determined to destroy David that his, his life spun completely out of control. In uh, chapter 21 to 23 of 1 Samuel, we read the story. David, on the other hand, the one who Saul was trying to kill, he showed immense self-control. In uh, chapter 24 uh, and verse 6 of 1 Samuel, it says this, He said to his men, he had the opportunity to cut the corner off Saul's cloak in a cave. He could have killed him. And David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lift my hand against him for he is the anointed of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that someone who had such self-control in a few years time, his self-control went out the window when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. No one's perfect. Even in the New Testament, there's an example. uh, Paul writes 
to, um, or he says some words to Felix, the governor, a Roman governor. And he chooses to emphasize this as Paul, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Felix didn't appreciate that. Felix had no self-control as a Roman governor. He'd indulged in all sorts of cruelty and lust. He'd committed both murder and adultery. But, but he was no different to most of the other people, the rulers in the Roman Empire of the day. Uh, many scholars have commented that when ancient Rome was disciplined and, and controlled, it was a great nature, nation. But when it became saturated in its own sin, it lost its glory. Drunkenness, orgies and an anything-goes mentality caused Rome to cave inward and implode on itself. It was the decline of the Roman Empire. It went hand-in-hand with self-indulgence. I wonder if Australia is going down that same road today in a lot of areas of our community. How did Felix respond to Paul's comments? The second part of verse 25 says this, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. We don't think he ever did. We think it was put on the spot and didn't want to be told that he lacked self-control. One of the founding fathers of the United States, you know his name, Benjamin Franklin, said this, He is governor that governs his passions and he is a servant that serves them. He is a governor that governs his passions but if he serves his passions then he becomes a servant of them. Some, in, some interesting words there. Unfortunately, some of us have allowed our walls individually to be broken down. Instead of governing our own desires and passions and appetites, some of us have become bingers. You know what a binger is? Someone who can't stop doing something. Some of us binge on food. Some of us binge on sleep. Others binge on work or TV, or sports, or buying things, or binging on sex even. And Solomon has something to say about that. He says this in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Where do you fit in the self-control aspect of your life? Solomon had some wise words to say. I want to reflect some of those this morning, just a a few verses out of Proverbs. And it addresses those areas where people struggle with self-control. I'm not saying there's anybody here that has these struggles, but you may do. And we need to be aware that, that we often have these struggles because we've let the walls break down and we've not repaired the walls in our lives. There is some good news coming. Let me share with you some of these places, some of these things that people are uncontrolled with in their life. Uncontrolled lust, Proverbs 6.26 says, For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Uncontrolled spending. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Uncontrolled ambition. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Uncontrolled drinking. 
Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. And perhaps this is one that many of us face, uncontrolled anger. Proverbs says in 29 verse 11, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. What hope is there? Paul offers some hope in his writings. In the book of Titus, have you read the book of Titus lately? Paul writes in the book of Titus to a, a new young pastor who is, has gone to minister to the church on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. I don't know if you know about Crete, but Crete was filled with pubs and taverns and was well known as the first century party place to go. I'm reminded of some of the scenes that I saw when some of the COVID-19 restrictions were lifted and there were these rages and parties going on uh, because people felt a sense of freedom, but I think they actually felt a sense, actually had a loss of self-control. Well, Crete was like that. It was a party place populated by people whom Paul describes this way in Titus 1.12. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. I wouldn't want to have that reputation. But this is what that island of people uh, showed to the world of the day. Temptations abounded and tripped up many people, even some of the new Christians. And Titus was sent there to work among this new believer's young Cretan congregation. They were new babes in Christ. They'd come out of this raucous, riotous party world around about them. Probably each of them still had friends that were involved in all the drunken love fests that Crete was known for. So it wasn't an easy place to win converts to Christ. Nor was it an easy place for believers to maintain their purity and their self-control in their lives. So Paul's letter to Titus has numerous admonitions to seize self-control. Instead of acting crazy with no restraint at all, Paul challenges four groups of people in this book, in this letter, to inverted commas, be in their right minds by being controlled by the Spirit of God. I'll just touch on these four people briefly. In Titus 1.8, he talks to the elders of the church. Talking about an elder, rather he must be responsible. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. So he was asking the leadership of the church to set the standard. Not just in the teaching, but the way they did life. To the older men. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. This was a challenge for Titus. Because he was a young fella. So to teach the older men to live that way, he had to convince them, then he had to model it as well. The older women, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Verse 4 and 5, following on there, says this. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands 
so that no one will malign the word of God. How can you teach someone to be self-controlled and pure if you're not self-controlled and pure yourself? So Paul was saying, this is your charge, Timothy, to the church there. In verse 6, the following verse, he says, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Remember, it was an island where people lost control regularly. It was that uh, place, that party place. The final verse in this chapter gives us a solution to out-of-control lives. And in uh, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, this is what it says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. What does that? The grace of God. So we have to understand and know the grace of God. And in doing that, it goes on in the next verse to say, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The key element to seizing self-control is to understand grace, the grace of God. God's lavish favour poured out on us who didn't deserve it, undeserving sinners. What does grace do? If we, if we have an understanding of grace, then we can trust God, trust control of our lives to God. Three things. Grace redeems us. There's no way we can save ourselves. We can't go to the cross for our sin. Jesus did that. But God took the initiative and he brought salvation to us through Jesus. Verse 14 says, Christ gave himself for us. He paid the price to buy us back from the entanglement and the punishment of sin. God's grace redeems us. Second thing, God's grace reforms us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. It it changes our appetite, our ambitions, our actions if we allow God's grace to come into our lives. We've been given freedom from the condemnation of sin and this incredible opportunity to live for Christ. Verse 14, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's who we are. That's what grace does for us. One Bible commentator, author and pastor, Warren Wearsbury, I've got some of his books on my shelf, he said this, that same grace that redeems us also reforms our lives and makes us godly if we allow God to work in our lives. God is training us through his Holy Spirit be the sort of people that he wants us to be. In verse 12 it says, we can say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. No to ungodliness. We we can be self-controlled by restraining ourselves, not not to give in to any depraved ideas or actions or notions. We can say no when everything in us is saying yes, do it. And the world is saying yes, do it. We can say no. Do you know, God knows that we're not perfect and I'm so glad he does. 
because uh, Paul writes in another letter to the one Corinthians that, uh, the, the first letter to the Corinthians that, that we will struggle with temptation. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, you probably know this verse. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So with the attractions of the world, the, the, the things that are asking us to say yes, when we know God wants us to say no, God knows that we will struggle with them. His reforming grace allows us to say yes by, by working on that spirit-controlled life that we want to have. What can we do? What can we do? What, what practically things can we do to uh, say no and also no to the things that will take us away from God but yes to the things that will draw us to God? Here's seven quick things. If I go through too quickly, you can ask me for my notes at the end. Seven ways to say no and yes. Admit that you have a self-control problem. If there's an area of your life that you struggle with being in control or being out of control, then you have to admit it. Secondly, surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Galatians, Paul writes this, Galatians 5, 6, So I say, live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's a choice we make to live by the Spirit. Cultivate disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. We're reading the scriptures to hear God's voice to us. We're praying to tell God what's on our heart and mind, to hear his direction to us. We need to have those disciplines in our lives. Invest in spiritual friendships. If you want to say no to the things that will take you away from God and yes to the things that God wants you to do, have some spiritual friends. In Ecclesiastes, the writer there says this, If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him get up. There's this wonder, there's this beauty, there's this privilege in having trusted Christian friends around us that we can come to in times of need, we can rely on for their support and that we can also offer them support when they need it as well. Invest in spiritual friendships. Resist bad influences. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? If we know something's not of God or something that will take us away from God, then we need to resist those things that tempt us. Paul writes this, Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So choose the people that we associate with. We need to practice good habits. And in Job, Job says this, I made a covenant with my eyes that I want not to look lustfully at a girl. So that was his choice. Great choice. We need to practice good habits. And we also need to welcome gracious correction. People care about you. People see you in action. They care about you. And they want the best things for you. Sometimes they need to remind us that we do something wrong. And we need to trust that they will graciously correct us. Do you think things would have ended differently for Samson if he had listened to those who warned him to not let God, to let God take control of his sex drive. I think it would have ended differently for Samson. So the third thing that grace does for us is grace rewards us. Grace rewards us. We can have self-control 
because we've been redeemed from the way we used to live. We've also been reformed on the inside and had power to actually change. But verse 13 of that passage tells us this in Titus. While we wait for the blessed hope, the the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's the reward, isn't it? Jesus is coming back for us to take us to be with him for eternity. So grace rewards us eventually. It's a remarkable contrast to people who are pleasure seekers to know that God offers this reward for those that are true to him. So we can wait, we can wait in hopeful expectation that we'll discover the antidote to worldly lusts and to worldly passions. Many years ago, many years ago, Cheryl and I both read this book uh, called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Anybody read that book? It's an excellent book. And I think we've got it in our library here. If not, I've got a spare copy at home. Richard Foster says this about uh, self-control. He says, Our ordinary method of dealing with ingrained sin is to launch a frontal attack. We rely on our willpower and our determination. Whatever may be the issue for us, anger, fear, bitterness, gluttony, pride, lust, substance abuse, we determine never to do it again. We pray against it, fight against it, and set our will against it. But the struggle is all in vain and we find ourselves once again morally bankrupt. I think he knows what life's about because often it's that desire and that willingness to take two steps forward but we often take one step back and we fail in all our best intentions. But you know, God's created us with different moods, different passions, different desires and they all need managing. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. We willingly submit to his management of all those things in our lives. There was a a theologian some years ago by the name of Lewis Smedes and he said it's like, the Holy Spirit is like a conductor of a symphony orchestra. He says it's it's under the conductor's baton or baton that all the talented musicians can play the right notes at the right time at the right volume and everything sounds right we allow the Holy Spirit to be the baton holder in our orchestra of our life, then he will make sure that everything stays in its proper place and comes at just the right time. So to be self-controlled is to be spirit-controlled. The Christians on Crete had a hard slog ahead of them because they're surrounded by this, um, this party island. And I don't know about you, but we're probably... Uh, involved with people that would be willing to pull us back into unrestrained living. The good news is we don't have to give in to them. We don't have to give in to our own desires. If we submit and surrender to the Spirit's control, we can experience freedom and power that you've not seen before. I want to finish this morning by referring to a work by Jim Simbala. Some of you may know his writings. He's written extensively on prayer and 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 other things. But I want to finish with the second part of the verses that we've been looking at, Galatians 5.23. It says there, against such things there is no law. There's nothing that will stop us from allowing the spirit of, the fruits of the spirit to come out in our life. There's no law against those things. It's our willingness to submit. And Jim Simbala writes this, he says, 
While Christ's work on the cross was the only way to settle the problem of guilt, sin and condemnation, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit was God's way of changing human beings from the inside out. The law given to Moses had failed at this very point. The law had tried to control people. It was in itself holy and just, but the problem was the sinful nature within people. He goes on, Now the Holy Spirit dwelling in the hearts of believers would conquer the age-old dilemma of, I want to be different but can't. I know what's wrong, but I keep doing it anyway. This empowerment by the Spirit would be the dynamic source throughout time for all who live and labour for Jesus Christ. Let's allow God's Holy Spirit to empower us on a daily basis, to allow us that, to seize that self-control, even though the plane might be doing a bomb dive. We've opportunities right here when we're on the ground to do and live the way that God wants us to when we allow God's spirit to be in control. This morning, there's a couple of verses from Galatians. Paul writes this. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And again in Galatians, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So are you living by the Spirit? Are you allowing the fruit of the Spirit to come out in your life? Or are you trying to do life on your own? That's the question we need to answer. Are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Or is your life out of control? You need to surrender. God's spirit today. I'm going to invite the music team to come up and we're going to sing that song, I Surrender All, this morning. We're going to do it a little bit differently. For the first three verses and choruses, I'm going to ask you to stay seated and then for the last two verses and choruses, stand together. But if while we're we're being seated, God has said something to you this morning about surrendering control of yourself to him, letting him take control of your self-control, then please stand. And say, yes, Lord, I surrender to you. So that's your option in the first three verses. It doesn't matter if nobody stands. It doesn't matter if everybody stands. But uh, then we're all going to stand and sing the last two verses. I surrender all. Thank you, musicians. Savior, I surrender. 
Let's all stand in these last, last few verses. All to Jesus I surrender, Lord, I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power, let Thy blessing fall on me. I surrender, I surrender. heard the words of our song, our prayer. Pray for those that indicated today that they want to surrender everything